podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router. And any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 5th of July. Hope you're all well. Hope the Americans aren't too hungover after Independence Day. Um, Right. Today, we are going to carry on walking our way through the Premier League seasons of past. We're going to go with the 93-94 season today. The second season of the Premier League and the second Premier League title for Manchester United. Before we get to Manchester United, let's have a look at the teams in the division. We have Arsenal, Aston Villa, Blackburn, Chelsea, Coventry, Everton, Ipswich, Leeds, Liverpool, 
Manchester City, Manchester United, Newcastle, Norwich, Oldham, QPR, Sheffield United, Sheffield Wednesday, Southampton, Swindon, Tottenham Hotspur, West Ham and Wimbledon. So obviously last season we talked about Crystal Palace, Middlesbrough and Nottingham Forest being relegated. This season we've got Newcastle coming into the division. We've got West Ham United coming into the division. And Swindon Town with Glenn Hoddle as player manager coming into the division. Um, The stadiums that get added are the county ground in Swindon, which if you've never been, is actually a really nice ground. It's a proper old ground. It's small it's been fairly well maintained and credit to them. It's a nice stadium to go to. Obviously with West Ham, it was the, the boiling ground, also known as Upton Park, which no longer exists. And for Newcastle, obviously St. James's Park. We had quite a few new managers. We had um, John Lyle being promoted as from manager to director of football of Ipswich, and he was replaced by Mick McGiven. Uh, Having gotten Swindon promoted, Glenn Hoddle decided to walk away and took the Chelsea job, replacing David Webb, who'd been the caretaker. He was replaced at Swindon by John Gorman. Manchester City, early in the season, very early in the season, would sack Peter Reid and bring in Brian Horton, and then more changes would take place during the year. But the most notable managerial change here is that Tottenham decided to sack Doug Livermore and Ray Clemens, the joint managers who'd taken charge for the first season of the Premier League, and appoint former Spurs player and former Argentine international who won a World Cup, Ozzy Ardiles, the first non home country's manager in Premier League history. Last year, all we had were English, Scottish, Welsh, and one Irish guy who was the foreigner. But now we had a real foreigner in Ozzy Ardiles. Uh, Once again, no kits made by Nike, but we do have some, uh, some more interesting... Uh, kit manufacturers. Now, ASICS, they grew their brand this year. This year, they had four clubs who they were making the kits for. Aston Villa, Blackburn, Leeds United, and Newcastle. Adidas were still quite small in the English sphere of football at the time. They still had Arsenal. They still had Liverpool. Riborough, were still knocking around. They had Wimbledon. They had Norwich. And they had Coventry. We had Sheffield Wednesday with Puma. The first Puma kit in Premier League history. QPR's kits were made by something called Clubhouse. Southampton's were made by Pony. Who a lot of people might not remember. Uh, They're still going. They were quite a small company and not known for football apparel but they were making Southampton's kits and West Ham's kits 
And then as with the previous season, Umbro were the major manufacturer. You had uh, Chelsea, Everton, Ipswich, Manchester City, Manchester United, Oldham, Sheffield United and Spurs all wearing Umbro kits that year. Again, some some of the sponsors kind of stand out. So JVC still with Arsenal. Uh, Muller, the German dairy company, they took over Aston Villa. McEwen's Lager sponsored both Blackburn and Newcastle. Amiga, who used to make computers, they were one of the companies, I think, owned by Commodore. They were Chelsea sponsors. Peugeot was Coventry sponsors. NEC were still with Everton. The Fisons were still with Ipswich. Thistle Hotels. They've got a handful of hotels around the country now. I don't know how big they were back then, but they sponsored Leeds. Liverpool had Carlsberg. City had Brother. United had Sharp. <clears throat> Norwich and Peterborough Building Society were still manage, are still sponsoring Norwich. JD Sports still sponsoring Oldham. Uh, CSF, don't know who they were, sponsoring QPR. Laver at Sheffield United, Sanderson with Sheffield Wednesday, Dimplex, who are an Irish-based uh, electrical goods firm. They were sponsoring Southampton. Burma, who were was a leading British oil company, were sponsoring Swindon. Holston still sponsoring Tottenham. Dagenham Motors, I can't imagine they were a massive company. They were sponsoring West Ham and LBC. The phone-in and talk radio station. Leading Britain's conversation, I think it's it's short for. Uh, they were sponsoring Wimbledon. That's the first sponsorship Wimbledon had in the Premier League era. Our top scorers this year, Andy Cole, in his first season in the division. So think about how, that impre- how impressive that is. Andy Cole was playing in the championship or well, the old Division 1 the year before, comes straight up into the Premier League and just absolutely tears it apart. He'd only been at Newcastle for the back half of the previous season. He played 12 games and scored 12 goals for the turn, having joined from Bristol City midway through the season. Came into the Premier League, played 40 games, and scored 34 goals. That was outrageous at the time. Alan Shearer had 31. Matt Letizia had 25. Chris Sutton had 25. Ian Wright had 23. Peter Beardsley, 21. Mark Bright, 19. Eric Cantona, 18. Dean Holdsworth with 17. And Rod Wallace, twin brother of Ray Wallace, younger brother of Danny Wallace, scoring 17 for Leeds. Uh, Andy Cole also had 13 assists. 34 and 13 for Andy Cole. Not someone known as a creative player. Eric Cantona had 12 assists to go with his 18 goals. Brian Dean, 11 assists. As a target man, it wasn't overly surprising that he got a lot of assists, but still, very impressive. Rule Fox and Chris Sutton both had 11 goals for Norwich Sutton's to go with 25, or sorry, 11 assists for Norwich. Sutton's to go with his 25 goals. And then Matty Holmes of West Ham, Paul Ince of Manchester United, Scott Sellers 
of Newcastle and Matt Letissier of Southampton, all with 10 assists. So Letissier, 25 and 10. Very, very impressive. Uh, we had hat-tricks that season from Mickey Quinn, Tony Cotton, Kevin Campbell, Effin Okoku of Norwich, Peter, uh, Peter Beardsley, Alan Shearer, Robbie Fowler, Bradley Allen of QPR, Andy Cole, Kevin Campbell, Tony Cotty again, Jan Agafjortov, Dean Saunders, Matt Letissier, Andy Cole again, two by Ian Wright, another by Andy, uh, sorry, another by Matt Letissier and another by Dean Holdsworth. Uh, your managers of the month, August was Ferguson, September was Kinnear, October was Mike Walker of Norwich, November was Kevin Keegan, December was Trevor Francis, January was Kenny Dogleash, February was Joe Royal, March and April both won by Joe Kinnear. So Joe Kinnear wins three of the Manager of the Month awards, but Alex Ferguson wins Manager of the Year. I'm not sure how that works, considering he was only voted Manager of the Month once, which was the first month of the season. Kinnear won it three times, including the two last months of the season, but didn't win the award. Uh, Eric Cantona was the Players' Player of the Year. Alan Shearer was the Football Writers' Player of the Year. Andy Cole was voted the PFA Young Player of the Year. In terms of the PFA Team of the Season, Tim Flowers was the goalkeeper from Blackburn. Gary Kelly and Dennis Irwin, two good Irish lads as the fullbacks. Kelly from Leeds, obviously Irwin from United. Pallister and Adams were the centre-backs. They were the two best centre-backs that season, without doubt. Paul Ince, Gary McAllister and David Batty were the chosen midfield. So one from Manchester United, one from Leeds United and one from Blackburn. And Of course, Batty had joined Blackburn from Leeds. Alan Shearer, Eric Cantona and Peter Beardsley picked as the front line. So Andy Cole despite leading the league in goals and assists, wasn't picked in the PFA Team of the Year, which does point to a rather large flaw in terms of the Team of the Year. So in terms of how the table went, Manchester United champions, 92 points, 8 points clear of Blackburn. So a comprehensive league title win for United. Newcastle in their first season in the division, finishing third with 77 points, Arsenal 4th with 71, then Leeds 5th with 70, the Wombles of Wimbledon 6th with 65, an outrageous achievement for Wimbledon, Sheffield Wednesday 7th, Liverpool 8th, just ahead of QPR in 9th on goal difference, Aston Villa 10th, Coventry 11th, Norwich, West Ham, then Chelsea, Tottenham, Tottenham in 15th, Manchester City in 16th. So you've got Chelsea, Tottenham and United, 14th to 16th. Imagine if something like that happened now. I know Chelsea finished in the bottom half this past season, but imagine if three of the big six did. Then Everton, who at the time, and I'll come back to that, Everton were a big, big club in their own right. Still are a big club, but back then they were even bigger. Then Southampton then Ipswich, then Sheffield United, Oldham, and Swindon. Swindon weren't competitive. 
losing Hoddle the way they did was a massive blow because he had been the driving force in getting them up. He played quite a bit, I think, in that season that they came up as well. I could be wrong about that. I'll, I'll look that up now. But I'm fairly certain he played a decent amount. I could be completely wrong. Does it have his career statistics? It does. Yeah, he played 45 games in a 46-game championship season. And Glenn Hoddle, for people that don't remember, is one of the greatest midfielders England has ever had. And even at that age, he was still a tremendous player. Like He played as player-manager for Chelsea for the next two seasons. He played 19 games this first season that we're talking about, 93-94, and he played 12 the next year. So losing him as their best player, probably, and losing him as their manager, that's a double whammy. And I think as well, if I'm not mistaken, there was less funding made available because Hoddle was gone and there was less interest from the the local fan base because Hoddle was gone because he was such a huge name when he went there. Uh, During the season, we had a number of sackings. So obviously... Last season, 92-93, just the one sacking mid-season. Things changed drastically this year. So like I mentioned earlier, Peter Reid was sacked. That was the 26th of August. He was replaced by Brian Horton. Tony Book was caretaker for one day. For one day. They made him caretaker for one day. What was the point? Uh, Bobby Gould was sacked and replaced by Phil Neal. Howard Kendall was sacked, replaced by Jimmy Gabriel as a caretaker for over a month. And then Mike Walker was brought in from Norwich. Norwich replaced Walker with John Dehan. Seth Hampton sacked Ian Brandfoot. Dave Merrington became caretaker for about two weeks. And Alan Ball took over. Liverpool sacked Graham Souness. And Roy Evans took over. And then Ipswich, who had promoted John Lyle to director of football and promoted Mick McGiven to manager, then demoted both of them and made Lyle the manager again and McGiven the assistant manager again. Imagine that happening now. Like, let's just say as a as an example that Jurgen Klopp is announced as the new director of football at Liverpool and Pepin Linders becomes manager. And then halfway through the season, it's not going great. So you demote Linders back to assistant manager and he just accepts it and Klopp just becomes manager again. Very, very strange. This was a different time. Very different time. But Swindon gone, we haven't seen them back. Oldham gone, we haven't seen them back. Swindon currently playing in League 2. Oldham playing in the National Leagues, that's the the fourth tier and fifth tier respectively. Sheffield United have just been promoted back into the division, obviously, which is great. They were unfortunate to go down that year. Like, they finished on 42 points. Tottenham, who finished 15th, remember there's 22 teams here, Tottenham only finished three points above Sheffield United. And two of the three teams above them who finished within two points of them, had worse goal differences. So had they drawn one more game or won one more game, they absolutely would have been fine and they would have stayed up. Very, very unfortunate for them. 
this was a fun season as well. United really kicked on this year. And having won the league title, they went out and they bought Roy Keane. And it was a real statement of intent from them that it wasn't going to be a one-off, that they were going to press press forward and try to dominate English football. And we hadn't really seen United in this kind of guise before because we were all too young. United had been great in the 60s, but they'd meandered through the 70s, including a relegation. They'd kind of struggled their way through the 80s. They'd gone through a bunch of managers. And it wasn't until Ferguson arrived that anyone really stuck in the job. But even at that, Ferguson was on the verge of getting sacked himself in 1989 then in 1990, he was again on the verge of getting sacked, but he wins the FA Cup. And then it starts to build. He wins the Cup Winners' Cup. Then he finishes second in the league. And then he won his first league title. And he clearly made a decision that I'm not going to be a one a one title manager. I'm going to go all out here and I'm going to buy the best available. And Roy Keane was the best available. 21 years of age. He'd been outstanding for Forrest the year before, was in the team of the season. And when he arrived at United, I mean, he was just so, so good. Brian Robson was very much on the downside of his career, had been a bit part player the year before and was definitely looking at, you know, his his next move, which obviously would be Middlesbrough. Roy Keane was the perfect Brian Robson replacement. Box to box, could do everything, good on the ball, was better off the ball than Robson, not quite as good on the ball, but similar traits, similar ability to time runs, get himself in the box, score a goal, which was something Ferguson was looking to add into his team because Paul Ince wasn't a huge goal scorer. Paul Ince was an underrated passer of the ball. But Keane himself said that when he went to United, the senior midfielders there told him, like, you have to be able to do everything here. And Keane had had three seasons in the top flight. He'd had the last two seasons of the old first division, plus that first season of the Premier League. And if you look at what he'd been able to do in his first season with Nottingham Forest, having just moved over from the League of Ireland at, I think, 19 years of age, Eight goals in 35 in the league, 11 and 49 in all competitions. The second season, eight and 39, 14 in 56. So Keane was a goal scoring midfielder. He got eight and 49 in all competitions, six and 40 in his last season with Forest. Then he joins United, he's five and 37, eight in 53. People have this vision of Roy Keane in their head where He's just this defensive midfielder. But Roy Keane could do everything. Like Roy Keane in his career scored 87 goals in the league and another nine for Ireland and could have scored a lot more, should have scored a lot more for Ireland. It must be said. Only nine for Ireland is is a bit disappointing because of what he was capable of. But even for United, if not for the knee injury, 
Roy Keane probably scores double the amount of goals across his career because his ability to time a run and that drive he had and that incredible lung capacity he had to just keep going and going and going and make those runs over and over and over again and not let up. Like that was what really made him so special in those early days is that you might match Roy Keane for the first 30 to 40 minutes of a game, but by minute 50, you're blowing out your ass and he's still going full pelt nonstop. And this is a guy who by his own admission was out drinking two and three times a week. Like imagine what he would be like now with the way modern footballers approach the game. Imagine what he would be like now if he was teetotal but still as driven and committed. The guy was just absolutely special, and he fit into that United team perfectly. And that's what made them so, so special. It's why they would have so much continued success, is that they were so good at identifying not just the right player, but the right personality to come into their team. That was one of Ferguson's great gifts was being able to identify the personality of a player. And you look at that United team at the time, Peter Schmeichel, big personality, dominant personality. Paul Parker, very quiet, very measured, very sensible player. Same with Dennis Irwin. Steve Bruce, another kind of bombastic, loud leader. Lee Sharp, bit of a jack the lad. came through. They brought him in from Torquay into their academy and had developed him. But he was a player that had great confidence in his own ability. Pallister, more of that quiet, conservative approach. Cantona, there was few bigger personalities in the game. Ince, big, bombastic personality. Brian McClare, quiet, more reserved. Mark Hughes, big, bombastic personality. On the pitch, but then off the pitch, a very different person. Very reserved off the pitch. Ryan Giggs, this incredibly gifted young player that they'd been so fortunate to rob from Man City. Brian Robson, huge personality, great leader. Les Seeley, backup keeper, very experienced. Andre Kinchelskis, quite quiet, quite reserved, explosive on the pitch. Uh, Blackmore didn't play that season. Keane arrived in, and that's basically it in terms of who played. Young players in the squad that year. Gary Neville played one game in the league. Uh, David Beckham was in the squad, did not play at all. Paul Scholes in the squad, did not play at all. Keith Gillespie, who'd eventually be part of the Andy Cole deal, did not play at all. Nicky Butt had one sub-appearance in the league and one in the FA Cup. And all of those players obviously would go on to become much bigger names at United. But if you look at that mix of leaders and then players that just went about their business and had no fuss. The only player you'd look at in that squad who played any real part that was maybe a bit too problematic for the level of their talents was Lee Sharp. He's the only one. Everyone everyone else was either a model professional and a reliable 7 or 8 out of 10, or a great leader and a high-end player. Now, Steve Bruce wasn't a high-end player, but he was a great leader. United had Schmeichel as a leader, him as a leader, Ince as a leader, Cantona as a leader, Robson around the club as a leader. Like This is what real leadership looks like. 
these guys didn't need to all be told they were leaders. They didn't need eight articles a year about their leadership. But the other thing about it is United always knew, well, we can let one or two of these go. When the time comes, we'll let them go because what we do here is we we develop these players, we make these players, we find these players. I'm worried they're going to sign guys that are leaders or guys that are just zero-hassle players. And that's where Ferguson was so good. In the Football League Cup that season, Aston Villa beat Manchester United in the final, 3-1. Dalian Atkinson, rest in peace, he scored the opener on 25. Dean Saunders made it 2 on 70. Mark Hughes pulled one back for United on 82. And then Saunders from the penalty spot wrapped it up in the 90th minute. In the FA Cup that year, Manchester United claimed the double. And obviously that Villa final loss means they were denied what would have been the first ever domestic treble. And we didn't see a domestic treble until 2018-19. Yet they came that close in 93-94, playing extra league games. And the United were poor in in Europe that year, it must be said, but such is life. In the FA Cup final, they wiped the floor with Chelsea. Um, After a fairly tense first half, United exploded in the second half and the game was over by the 70th minute. Cantona from the penalty spot on 60, again on 66. Mark Hughes on 69 and then Brian McClare wrapped it up on 90. Um, That Chelsea team, obviously, like I said earlier, managed by Glenn Hoddle. Uh, Dimitri Kareen in goal. Steve Clark, now manager of Scotland at right back. Erlen Johnson and Jakob Keldberg. If you haven't heard of them, don't be surprised. Frank Sinclair was a very good player for a long time for Chelsea at left back. Uh, Craig Burley, now best known for dreadful takes in ESPN. Eddie Newton, who was really, really solid, a really solid midfielder. Like the type who's six and a half to seven every single game. The type you really want in your squad. He was a very underrated player. Gavin Peacock was a very talented player. He never quite reached his potential. Dennis Wise was captain of Chelsea. He's the current president of Serie B side Como 1907. I'm not quite sure how that's come about. I assume some business partner is involved. That's the club Sesk is now going to be a coach at. Um, Dennis Irwin was a good player, but he was an odd player in that he's about 5'6", five, 5'7". Five, thought he was a real hard man because he'd been at Wimbledon with like Vinnie Jones and that, and he thought he was Vinnie Jones. And it was fine when he could kick people and then Vinnie Jones would back him up. But at Chelsea, his mouth got him into more trouble than it solved. Uh, and then up front, they had uh, John Spencer and Mark Steen, who I always liked. Um, Kevin Hitchcock was the backup goalkeeper. Glenn Hoddle and Tony Cascarino came off the bench. For United, Peter Schmeichel, Paul Parker, Steve Bruce, Gary Pallister, Dennis Irwin. Outstanding defence. Kinchelskis, Ince, Keane, Giggs in midfield. Phenomenal. And Mark Hughes and Eric Cantona up front. Absolutely outstanding. Gary Walsh, Lee Sharp and Brian McClare as the subs in that game. Sharp and McClare came on. Only three subs back then, remember. Not like not nine like there is now. Three. And teams would make two. So, um, yeah. 
actually we should do the the league cup final since we're since we're talking about it and talk and look at the team. So for United, uh, it's exactly the same. Oh, Les Seeley played in goal. Les Seeley played in goal in that one. But it's Parker, Bruce, Pallister, Irwin, Kinchelskis, Keane, Ince, Giggs, Hughes, and Cantona, uh, Gary Walsh, Lee Sharp, and Brian McClare. Again, the subs. I assume Schmeichel was either injured or suspended that he didn't that he didn't play. I could be wrong. Maybe he wasn't either. For Villa, Mark Bosnich in goal. He'd obviously go on to play for United, and then his career was sort of ended with scandal when he failed a drugs test at Chelsea. Earl Barrett at right back. Earl Barrett was Earl Barrett was a bit like Kyle Walker back in the day, like a good athlete, a good solid defender, decent on the ball, reliable. Didn't have Walker's full range of pace, but was pretty quick, pretty good. Uh, Paul McGrath at centre-back, unbelievable. There's no no need to go into him anymore. Sean Teal, very, very underrated centre-back. Just one of those that threw himself in front of everything. Blood and thunder type, but reliable. Steve Staunton at left-back was very good for Liverpool, was very good for Villa. Dalian Atkinson was one of the most talented players English football ever produced, but never had the consistency. Never had the consistency. But some of the goals he scored across his career are some of the best that the Premier League has ever seen. Uh, Kevin Richardson, really good pass of the ball. Really clever player. Just one of those that could just manage a game in midfield. Next to Andy Townsend, who was kind of the same. Just manage a game for you. Tony Daly, like Atkinson, one of the most talented English players of the last 50 years. Injuries blighted his career. He was. Now, when I say lightning, I don't mean lightning like normal footballers. I mean this guy was something different. Like, this guy was Kyle Walker plus in terms of pace. When he knocked the ball past the fullback, they often just tried to foul him straight away. Just grab him, kick him, whatever, because there was no catching him. But, unfortunately, he had hamstrings that were made of paper mache. Uh, And up front, Graham Fenton. Decent player. Decent player. And... Dean Saunders, who was really good for Derby and good for Villa, but really poor for Liverpool in between. Uh, On the bench for them, Nigel Spink, who is a Villa legend and was part of the Villa team that won the European Cup. Um, Neil Cox, who was a very good defender in his day. He actually, I didn't know he became a manager. He was last manager of Scunthorpe. Uh, Could play centre-back, could play right-back. Probably his natural position would have been right side of a back three. And he was probably a little bit mis- miscast as both fullback and centre-back. Right side of a back three would have been the sweet spot for him. And then Ray Houghton, who'd been great for Liverpool, was very good for Villa, great for Ireland over the years, scored a goal that beat the English in 1988 at the Euros. Tremendous. Managed by Ron Atkinson that year. Um, do we have any other characters in terms of managers? Um Kevin Keegan was one of the new managers. I I didn't go over the new managers that came into the division. Kevin Keegan came in as manager of Newcastle. He'd obviously been one of the greatest English players of all time, European Cup winner with Liverpool, European Footballer of the Year while at Hamburg. Big personality. Obviously became more famous the year later for the I would love it if we beat him and, and all that kind of stuff. But Keegan was great. And then... Ozzy Ardila, like I mentioned, 
John Gorman, like I mentioned, he wouldn't have been a big personality, more an understated type of guy. And Billy Bonds was the West Ham manager. And Billy Bonds had obviously been a great player for West Ham. Um, spent 21 years at the club as a player, played 799 games between 1967 and 1988, 21 years. He came through Charlton's academy, wasn't even their own academy player. They bought him at 21 and he played up until he was 42. Came into them as a top flight team. They were a trophy winner back then, went down with them, came back up with them. And then when they went down, he took over as manager and brought them back up. A proper one club. I know he came through Charlton, whatever, but he was a real one club man. A real, a real hammer. One of the greats. So yeah, there we go. That is the 93-94 season. Any interesting captains? Tony Adams, Kevin Richardson, Tim Sherwood. Uh, Dennis Wise, Brian Burrows, Dave Watson, Steve Palmer, Gordon Strachan, Ian Rush, Keith Curl, Brian Robson, Peter Beardsley, Ian Butterworth at Norwich, Mike Milligan at Oldham, uh, David Bardsley, Brian Gale, Chris Waddle, Matt Letissier, Sean Taylor, Gary Mabbitt, Steve Potts, and Vinnie Jones. So in Aussie Ardealers, we have our first foreign manager, like property foreign manager, of the uh, Premier League era, but in terms of captains, uh, Mike Milligan of Oldham is about as foreign as it gets um, being an Irish international, one time Irish international, but he was actually born in England. So there we go. Right, we will take a break when we come back, a couple of bits of news and the gossip, and we will see you after this. Right, welcome back. So uh, we got news last night that Arsenal have reached a compromise with West Ham. Payment structure agreed. And the compromise is that Arsenal have just given in to exactly what West Ham wanted. So it's a massive fee up front. And then the 100 million fixed fee paid in three installments over the 24 months. So to recap, Arsenal having bid initially 75 million end up paying 100 million and having initially asked to pay it back over four years will now be paying it back over two years. Edu is not a master negotiator at all. He would have been better and it would have been better for everybody involved if he'd just gone to West Ham in the first place and said, right, what do you want? Oh, 100 million, 50 up front, the rest paid over the next two years. That's fine. Yeah, we'll do that. And and this deal could have been done weeks ago instead of dragging it out. But it's done. He will have his medical and I think he used to finalise some personal terms. But um, yeah, Declan Rice will be a gooner. Uh, Manchester United have unveiled Mason Mount as their new player. 55 million with 5 million in add-ons. Mount says Eric Ten Hag's United blueprint convinced him to leave the club. Uh, nothing to do with the enormous salary then. Um, look, I like Mason Mount. I think he's a good player. I do think he's a good player. I think he's a poor fit at United. I think he's a good squad addition for United in terms of he could be cover for Bruno and cover for Rashford. 
but he's not better than either of those players. I don't think he starts over either of those players. And he's not suited to playing in a double pivot. And a midfield three of Bruno, Casemiro and him has no balance to it at all. You've got nobody to progress the ball. Casemiro is a good passer, but he's not going to progress the ball for you. Mount's best work is done off ball. And Bruno's a final third player. So we'll wait and see. I I don't think it moves the needle for United, even though I do think he's a good player. But $55 for a Mason Mount with one year left in his contract, that's, that's an overpay. That's an overpay. I hope for him it goes well. I hope for them, obviously, it's a disaster. But for him, because I do like Mason Mount, I hope it goes well. Uh, Roberto Firmino has sealed his deal to Al-Ali in the Saudi Pro League after leaving Liverpool. He signed a three-year deal. Uh, Rumours are it's a £25 signing bonus with £25 a year in salary. So congrats to Bobby. Five hundred grand a week is pretty spectacular. It must be said, pretty spectacular. Um, to the darker side of football, and Fleetwood Town owner Andy Piley or Pilly has been jailed for fraud. The owner and former chairman of Fleetwood Town has been jailed for a multi-million pound fraud which duped firms into expensive energy contracts. A trading standards investigation found that Andy, Andy Piley missold gas and electricity contracts and posted fake customer comments on websites. The 53-year-old of Thornton, Cleveleys and Lancashire resigned as chairman and club director of the League One side following his conviction last month. He was jailed for 13 years. He was found guilty at Preston Crown Court of two counts of running a business with the intention of defrauding creditors, one count of false representation, and one count of being concerned with the retention of criminal property. Three other people were also jailed for their roles in the scam. On sentencing, Judge Knowles, KC, said a... Salesforce of cold-calling liars and manipulators duped a very large number of honest and decent proprietors into long and expensive contracts for their gas and electricity amounting to tens of millions of pounds. The judge said this was a devised and enforced pretense, which was elaborate, and that the sales team were independent of the supply companies. The truth was he owned them and he called the shots. Crazy. So basically, from what I can make out, he owned one of the supply companies and then he had a sales team that he was pretending were a third party but were actually his own, selling his product for much higher than it was actually worth. He's been chairman of Fleetwood Town from 2000, since 2004. The investigation began in 2014. It's taken nine years for this to get sorted. That's insanity. Um, yeah. 
He's also been found guilty of money laundering, um, which is something else. Uh, it remains to be seen now whether he'll keep ownership of the club or whether he'll be forced into a sale, I suppose. Um, teenage Swiss midfielder Iman Benny has been ruled out of the Women's World Cup because of a serious knee injury. She's only 16, and she'd been called up to the Swiss senior team for the World Cup and has torn her ACL. That is very, very unfortunate. But hopefully, 16, she should be able to bounce back, and hopefully she won't have a career that's wrecked by injuries. Uh, Leeds have confirmed Daniel Farka as their new manager on a four-year deal. I would keep a very close eye on Stuart Webber following him there as the new director of football come September time. I would be willing to bet that's what happens. Uh, 49er Enterprises have also completed the bio, the, the takeover of Leeds, but it hasn't been ratified yet. But this is all very positive for Leeds. Um, in bad news, Millwall's owner and chairman, John Berylson, uh, sorry, John Berylson has died at the age of 70 following what's been called a tragic accident. The American businessman first became involved with the Championship Club in 2006. He was a truly great man, incredibly devoted to his family, Millwall said in a statement. Berylson is survived by his wife, Amy, and three children, Jennifer, James, and Elizabeth. The club added he was a person of such remarkable generosity, warmth, and kindness. He lived a storied life, one full of colour and joy, and was infinitely thoughtful of others with an endless desire to share his immense knowledge and experiences to help people. And no further details have been released around his death. The club have said fans can pay their respects in signing a book of condolences, which will be shared at the family, or sorry, with the family. Uh, the book will be available at the Den Stadium on Wednesday, which is today, or online. Um, He's presided over some of the greatest moments in Millwall's history and his influence in providing a platform for those was immeasurable. That is a massive blow and it does throw into question what happens to Millwall now. Millwall, in my lifetime, had always been a chaotic club known for violence more than anything else. And over the last 10, 12 15 years they've become a much more stable club and they've become noted for actually playing some decent football and that you know neanderthal past that they had all seems to have just kind of moved away as the club have moved into the more modern era where hooliganism is not accepted now there's still an element as there is at other clubs but it's far far less than it was before uh, so yeah, rest in peace to John Berylson and, you know, thoughts with everybody connected, his family, his friends, and obviously Millwall Football Club. Uh, we will do the gossip and we will be done for today. Manchester City are ready to accept a bid this summer of between 45 and 50 million for Portugal winger Bernardo Silva. So says Peter Rourke, who is an enormous spoofer. Andre Onana has rejected interests from Saudi Arabia so that he can push through a move to Manchester United, so says Graham Bailey, who is also a spoofer. Newcastle are interested in a move for 
England defender Mark Wehi, although Crystal Palace are asking for a fee of sixty million, so says our good friend Peter Rourke, who is a spoofer. Thiago Alcantara is attracting interest from foreign clubs, including those in Saudi Arabia, although Liverpool are yet to receive an official bid for the player. That was written by Paul Joyce in the Times, so will be reliable. Uh, Arsenal's $105 million bid to, sorry, deal signed Declan Rice is close to being finalised, yada yada. Um, Arsenal have held talks with Orby Leipzig over German midfielder Benjamin Henricks as a replacement for outgrowing going Granite Xhaka. I'm going to go right ahead and call that nonsense because it makes absolutely no sense. Uh, that's a right-footed, right-back slash midfielder. Been looked at to replace a left-footed central midfielder? Doesn't seem likely. Uh, the Gunners will press ahead with a move for Jeremy Frimpong. I would have great doubts that's going to happen because they're pressing ahead with a move for Jurian Timber. And Frimpong doesn't fit how Arsenal use their fullbacks. Arsenal, Manchester City, Manchester United and Tottenham are among a large group of clubs who have shown interest in Red Bull Salzburg's 19-year-old Israeli midfielder, Oscar Glosh. Um, He's immensely talented. Immensely talented. Brighton's Spanish goalkeeper, Robert Sanchez, has emerged as a potential target for Manchester United. I actually wouldn't be surprised if that one happened. Barcelona have agreed a deal for Vitor Roque of Atletico Paranins and must see if they can reduce their wage bill before knowing if the 18-year-old Ford can join this summer in January or next summer. What a mess. What an absolute mess. This is great. Barca have moved ahead of Real Madrid in the race to sign Arda Guler. Um, Real Madrid are clearly ahead and will have that deal probably wrapped up in the next couple of days. Um, Guler has received offers from Arsenal and Sevilla, but has no interest in either. Real Madrid have asked Inter Milan to name their price for Latour Martinez. I would call nonsense on that one. Paris Saint-Germain and Christophe Galtier have mutually agreed to part company, and Luis Enrique will be presented as the team's new manager on Wednesday, which is today. Hasn't happened yet, but we'll wait and see. Along with Enrique as their new manager, PSG will announce six new incomings in the coming days. Uh, Lucas Hernandez, Manuel Ugarte, Canyon Lee, Marco Asensio, Milan Skriniar and Cher Nadur are all arriving. Skriniar, Ugarte and Hernandez are good signings. Don't know a whole lot about Nadur. Canyon Lee is talented, but he's meant to be a bit of an arsehole. And Marco Asensio, I, I wouldn't have signed in a fit. Uh, Brighton have renewed their interest in Calvin Bassey. He'd make sense given they're looking for a left-footed centre-back. Almeria say Everton and two Italian clubs have submitted offers for El Balil Toure. We'll wait and see where he ends up. Callum Hudson-Odoi has decided to leave Chelsea this summer with AC Milan joining the race. Are AC Milan just going to try and sign all the cast-offs from Chelsea? Is that their new business plan? Tino Livermento would prefer a move to Newcastle after Chelsea showed surprise interest in re-signing him. Um, he's got no path to the first team. Now, I don't know if he'll be better than Malo Gusto, but I think he'll be close. But they've got Malo Gusto and they've got Reese James. At Newcastle, it's just Kieran Trippier, who's not great and is 33. So there's definitely a path to the first team there. Um, Arsenal are open to selling Fowler and Balogun this summer and have set a 50 million valuation. They must be going to try and sell them 
to themselves because nobody else would be that stupid. Arsenal are set to agree a complex extension with William Saliba. Hearing rumours of 220 grand a week for William Saliba. Albert Sambi Laconga has said he wants to leave Arsenal this summer. Don't really blame him. Manchester United have been offered the chance to sign Sophie and Amrabat. Makes no sense for them. Alan St. Maximin has emerged as the latest Premier League target to be Premier League player to be targeted by the Saudi Pro League. Suppose that could make sense. El Etafak have made a concrete approach to Steven Gerrard's former club Rangers regarding Scott Wright. Concrete approach, concrete talks, concrete target is sheer sign of spoofing taking place. And this is spoofing because it's our good friends at Football Insider. This time it's Fraser Fletcher, who is undeniably a spoofer. Undeniably a spoofer. But when you hear concrete, just think bullshit. Aaron Ramsey has held talks with Cardiff over a return to his boyhood clubs after the Wales midfielder was released by Nice. Former Spanish midfielder Andreas Iniesta has offers from Inter Miami and Saudi Arabia after leaving Vizel Kobe. And Barcelona have won the race signed Vitor Roque, which everybody already knew. Right, that is that, folks. That's all I've got for today. I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.